You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, fans of National Security Law. While you were distracted by culture wars, the trials in Kenosha and Georgia, and your social media feed, did you know that China stockpiled a thousand nuclear warheads and tested an intercontinental hypersonic missile? Did you know that Russia launched an anti-satellite missile into space that came close enough to the International Space Station that the astronaut crew had to seek shelter and brace for possible impact? As Sun Tzu wrote, if his forces are united, separate them. If sovereign and subject are in accord, put divisions between them. Attack him where he is unprepared and appear where you are not expected. Well, somebody's been reading that and it wasn't us. I'm Elisa. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And I'm Yvette. Also this week, the iconic American company founded by J.P. Morgan broke into three companies after revelations that it was paying shares without taking it from reserves. The United States announced a partnership with China to fight climate change without irony, and a series of new terror attacks rocked the Middle East. Put down that tablet and join us. All right, our guest today is Brian Egan of Skadden Arps. He's a friend of the cast and a man who has served at the highest levels of Treasury, as well as the State Department. He's also a member of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And of course, we'll link his bio in the notes to this podcast. Brian, we are always happy to have you here. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's great to be here today. But with that list of topics that you and Yvette mentioned, I'm not sure how we can top any of those things with our discussion today, but we can try. Actually, I'm sure we can. And we are super excited to announce that this is our 200th podcast. Sharp-eyed listeners will remember that Brian Egan kicked off our very first podcast. So thank you so much for coming back (laughs) and for sticking with it. (laughs) You helped make us what we are today. And in addition to uh, toasting Brian and thanking him for being here, I have to say thanks to Holly and Yvette. Yvette, you've been here with me every step of the way. You've been an amazing partner in this process. It's been great. We're happy to have Francis, who helps us uh, with our editing. And we certainly miss our first editor and, frankly, producer, Nicole Kakosa, who has moved on to the Kennedy School at Harvard. But anyway, we're glad you're listening. So with Brian here, we wanted to return to a core national security issue, which is illicit finance. A number of kleptocrats were recently called out and exposed by another data dump, this one dubbed the Pandora Papers. Let's go over how kleptocrats acquire and hide their assets. So kleptocracy is kind of one of those motherhood and apple pie issues in that who can be for kleptocracy? I think we're all opposed to that. You know, it's the nature of the problem is it's pretty straightforward and it seems pretty bad. And authoritarian government or government coming out of communism in the case of the former Soviet Union has a lot of assets. The government leadership figures out ways to take those assets, to steal them and to keep them for themselves and their families and their friends, typically by parking those assets overseas. So what are the goals? And overseas, by the way, often means the United States because we are the world's leading financial system. So U.S. goals in this area are are pretty straightforward. One, we want to out the kleptocrats, expose them for what they are. Two is we want to prosecute them where we can. Three is we want to make it harder for kleptocrats to be kleptocrats, to prosper. And four is really to find their, their assets, find the funds, freeze them, seize them, and return them to the local population. So it sounds like a great plan. It's been in place for at least 20 years. 
Not easy to do for lots of reasons that we can talk about, but it's something that the government and this administration has turned back to focus on for a lot of different reasons, including some public disclosures about kleptocratic practices that came out of things like the FinCEN papers. Okay, so let's just say that I want to say one thing, though, Mr. Egan, which is that I think Mr. Putin would be in favor of kleptocrats. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, Anyone can quarrel with me if they choose to. Back to your point, let's talk about the national security tools that we have. It is a growing problem. Let's talk about these tools and really whether or not they are up to the job, whether or not they're modern. What are your thoughts? So there's a lot of tools. This is like my dad's toolkit from the 1970s in some ways, though. Some of the tools are a little rusty. Some of them could probably use an upgrade or an update. So let's talk about them. One is the favored foreign policy tour du jour, which is economic sanctions, naming and shaming the, the bad actors of the world. The U.S. is the leader on this issue, often on its own, sometimes with other countries. And the U.S. government has created a program, a sanctions program, called the Global Magnitsky Sanctions Program, which allows the government to impose sanctions against persons who are engaged in serious corruption and serious human rights abuses. That's been used against some kleptocrats. That's administered by the Treasury Department and the State Department. Second tool, law enforcement, traditional law enforcement, prosecute the bad guys. Criminal prosecutions by DOJ here in the United States for things like money laundering, tax evasion, failure to declare assets if assets are here within U.S. jurisdiction. That also happens. Three is work to identify assets and return them to the relevant country. And this is one of my favorite programs. Even It's one of the harder programs to, to implement, I think. But for many years, the Justice Department has had a program in place called the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative, where they and the FBI actually work with overseas partners to identify assets, particularly assets here in the United States, and try to return them to the people from whom they were stolen. And I think last I checked, about $5 billion in assets had been returned under this program. You know, a drop in the bucket compared to the number of assets that have been stolen, but it's something. It's real money, at least. Um, And then fourth is just seeking international agreement about what kleptocracy is and that we're all opposed to it. And there you have the State Department and the Treasury Department working in international organizations uh, to build a consensus around either treaties or norms uh, that we can point to to say, everybody, sorry, Mr. Putin, everybody agrees that these practices are abhorrent and that we should do something to stop them. So we have a lot of tools. They're not a perfect set of tools for a lot of different reasons, but there are mechanisms to be used to try to stop and fight out against kleptocracy uh, within the U.S. government. Let's talk a little bit about beneficial ownership. What is that and why is it not always clear who's behind the money? Yeah, so that's a a really important concept and actually one of our failures or Achilles heels in the United States is that beneficial ownership of legal entities is something that all of the countries of the world have agreed is an important tool to fighting corruption overall and to fighting money laundering and the hiding of illicit funds uh, overall as well. Why is that? Because kleptocrats try to move their money, which they've stolen, so illicitly gained money, into vehicles that look legal, which could be a company. It could be an investment fund. It could be a real estate fund. And they don't do that just in the name of the kleptocrat. They do that 
three or four levels removed from a name that anyone would associate with them. How do you get at that problem? Well, to get at that problem, law enforcement and banks and regulators need to have access to the people who are actually behind the companies that are making investments in the United States, for example, or in the UK, because having access to that information will allow you ultimately to trace back to who the ultimate owner is of these assets and identify where kleptocracy is behind uh, some sort of an investment. What's the problem? Here in the United States, we have long pushed back against having strong national beneficial ownership identification requirement laws for a variety of reasons, financial privacy, the fact that each state has its own way of regulating corporate entities, which leads to a little bit of a race to the bottom where each state wants to under-regulate the others to attract investment. This past year, the U.S. Congress passed a law that would potentially solve part of this problem. It's required FinCEN within the Treasury Department to create a database, a national database of uh, certain legal entities and their beneficial owners, where if you're one of these types of legal entities, you would be required to share beneficial ownership information with FinCEN within the Treasury Department, and FinCEN would then make that information available as appropriate to law enforcement and potentially to financial institutions. It's a partial solution. There are lots of problems with the solution, but in my view, at least it's a step in the right direction towards uh, something that could really help in the fight against kleptocracy. That does sound like a challenge. It, it also, I can see a situation where there's perceived beneficial ownership, right? Like the American entity really only knows one step or two steps and, and hence discloses that. But if you take four or five, six steps, it's really, you know, it's somebody else entirely. So I, you know, I, I wish the law extended that far and I wish we had great abilities to do that, but it's at least it's some measure in the right direction. One of the things that we've been looking at lately, in particular, Brian, is sort of what's happening right now in Eastern Europe with respect to the throttling of natural gas and the like. And that is, you know, a natural resource that exists in Russia and some other nations that has basically been hijacked by their leaders and exploited for their own personal enrichment. A lot of that after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the change sort of in the global structure. But I guess the question is, I, I've heard some discourse about whether or not we can just go ahead and do sanctions against kind of everybody. I mean, it does seem to me, looking at OFAC's website, like, you know, that region, a lot of those people are pretty well blanketed with sanctions. What are the hazards there? Can we not just rely upon the sanctions? We do rely a lot upon sanctions uh, more than any other country in the world. And I think that's in part because we are the financial center of the world still. And so when we impose sanctions, they connect to U.S. financial institutions, which kind of has an outsized influence on uh, international trade because so many transactions that don't even involve the U.S. directly transit through the United States through a U.S. financial institution who will in turn comply with U.S. sanctions in deciding whether to process that transaction. That is a, a tool that we have a lot of leverage in using more so than any other country because of our role as the, the world's center of international commerce. Now, one of the, the risk factors there, one of the warning signs that people have begun to say more frequently is the more we use this tool, the more countries of the world, including some of our allies, are going to find ways to stop banking in the United States because of their concerns of, with our use of this tool. So we're at the point now where 
it's popular in the European Union, for example, to talk about creating mechanisms that would allow for global trade that doesn't involve the United States. And it's specifically because of our sanctions and the impact that they have on international commerce. China, the same way. They've been talking about developing a digital currency or an alternative mechanism for clearing transactions that doesn't clear the United States because of our sanctions. So I do think that that's a real concern that it's not just about corruption and kleptocracy sanctions. It's really about our use of this tool overall is at some point, are we going too far? And the, the benefits that we all derive from being the world center of global commerce and financial transactions go away. Uh, there, I think there is a risk in that area. Uh, another risk I'd flag, Lisa, is the idea of due process. Uh, you know, when you prosecute somebody, there are, if you're in the United States, there's a right to a fair trial, there's a right to a jury, there are th- rights that apply uh, in a criminal case uh, and a standard of proof that's necessary that we're familiar with. It's not a perfect system, but it's one that you can wage a defense in. When you're put on a sanctions list, you don't have the same rights. Uh, you're put on a sanctions list typically without any notice. The US government may give you a little bit of information explaining why you're added to that list but kind of all the benefits cut in favor of the U.S. government. The standard under U.S. legal precedent for maintaining some listing of sanctions is very is relatively low, lots of deference given to the U.S. government. And so there is some amount of complaint that these sanctions are not seen as fair uh, in that way. And I think that's another area that we have to be careful is we need to show that our sanctions are backed up by evidence And that if we're wrong or if somebody changes their course or or addresses U.S. government concerns, that the sanctions are dynamic and that people and entities can be taken off the list when they actually engage with the U.S. government and address concerns. Um, And I think the more that we use sanctions, the more important it is that we have good processes in place, which are known to everybody for addressing criticisms and allowing people to seek relief in appropriate circumstances. And then there are other tools in addition to this that we can use that go back to one of the other roles that you've had in your career, fortunately, which is to the extent that we're forging diplomatic relationships and not ceding our role as sort of the international peace broker, you know, a diplomatic nation. Now that we're sort of back and we're back in the game, regardless of what your politics are, those things can also be influential, something short of sanctions and having, you know, whole countries essentially embargo certain nations and their products. But I do think it falls apart when you're dependent on a natural resource for daily living. And I do think we're seeing that right now in Europe. Um, I think it's the fulfillment of what Rob Dannenberg told us was Putin's you know, ultimate dream to return the structure in Europe to its pre-1989 days. And it's, it's not surprising that energy is the tool that he's using um, it's also not surprising that he is the chief beneficiary of, of those external natural gas and crude businesses out of Russia. But I, I take your point. So, Brian, you were talking about how there really isn't an adequate redress if you get added to a sanctions list. What can I do? Because, shocker, the U.S. government does make some mistakes sometimes or people do remediate their behavior. What can I do? Can I just hire a lawyer? Can I stand outside the State Department with a boombox? Like, what am I supposed to do in order to get taken off the sanctions list? 
Well, it's funny you say that because there was a group that for many years literally stood outside the State Department with a boombox. <laughs> and they, ultimately, they were taken off the sanctions list, actually. So maybe that is an effective mechanism. No kidding. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. uh, but All that right. wouldn't be my recommended first course of action. So uh, what can you do? Well, OFAC is the agency, the Office of Foreign Assets Control. It's part of the Treasury Department. They're in charge of sanctions for the U.S. government. And uh, they have published administrative procedures that you could go through anyone who's added to a sanctions list. You can file a petition with this agency explaining why it is that they either made a mistake, why your behavior has changed, why the sanctions are inappropriate. And OFAC has uh, said that they will consider your petition and provide a response. Now, in the vast majority of cases, OFAC considers your, your petition and the response is, we're not changing anything. Uh, so then what can you do? Well, you can sue OFAC, and it happens fairly regularly. Individuals or entities have sued OFAC to say, you know, we, we don't know why we're added to the list. The government was wrong. We don't have access to the information in the government's possession that they say is the evidence for adding us to the list. And there have been some, I'd say at least procedural victories uh, by people on the list in this way where courts have recognized that OFAC, one, has to actually give some explanation of why they've imposed sanctions. It's not enough for them to say, we've decided sanctions are appropriate, and we're not going to tell you why. It's all classified. Well, in one case involving a, an Islamic charity called Al-Harmain uh, out in Oregon, the court you know, sided with OFAC at the end, but said, look, OFAC, you've got to at least tell these guys why they're on the list. And you haven't done enough to review your record, and you haven't done, done enough to declassify information to share with this group. Uh, that's one of their, the things that they should be afforded in due process. Second case, even more egregious in some people's minds, involved a, another charity, an Islamic charity called Kind Hearts, based in Ohio, where OFAC hadn't even imposed sanctions on this group. They were thinking about imposing sanctions, basically. So they issued something that was a, an order that was called a BPI order, Blocking Pending Investigation, which basically says, we're thinking about imposing sanctions. We're not sure if we're going to or not. But in the meantime, we are ordering all of your banks to freeze your bank accounts. If you're a charity in the United States, that basically puts you out of business. And this charity was truly Kafkaesque in some ways. They weren't on the sanctions list. So they had no way to even challenge the sanctions designation because OFAC said, well, we haven't decided whether to impose sanctions. But for literally five years, their assets were frozen pending investigation. And ultimately, the court in this case found that, or at least warned the government that it was about to find that this amounted to an unlawful seizure under the U.S. Constitution. And as a result, OFAC has been much more gun shy about using that authority. But it's just a good example of how really the, the deck is stacked against you um, if you're a sanctions target of the U.S. government. And there aren't a lot of good avenues to, to, to seek relief. And I understand that enforcement is a challenge just because of shocker staffing it <laughs> is not up to par. I mean, you could talk about lots and lots of parts of the U.S. government where this is the case, but can you just talk about the impact of not having personnel to kind of take care of enforcement? Yeah, well, just to take one example, uh, the agency I mentioned a few minutes ago, FinCEN, which is called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. I never really understood how an agency could be a network, but they are. They're a little arm of the Treasury Department. I think they have 300 employees, give or take. They're in charge of processing suspicious activity reports that are filed by U.S. financial institutions. 
Um, and these, there are literally millions and millions of these reports that are filed on an annual basis uh, with FinCEN. FinCEN maintains a database of these reports. One thing they do is they share them with law enforcement. That's a big part of what they do, but they also have their own enforcement uh, capabilities. But if you're an agency of 300 people with only a small portion of your staff dedicated to enforcement, there's really no way that you can uh, adequately monitor and police and follow up where necessary and uh, provide leads to law enforcement um, in a way that might do this huge volume of transaction reporting justice. So that's, you know, and that's just one example of the agencies who, who kind of play in this space and some of the resources uh, challenges that they face. I have another question. We're all lawyers on this uh, on this cast, and the Panama Papers was just a massive leak from a law firm. Like, how do we? And and that's why we're talking about this. One of the reasons why this is like a a, a, a topical subject, and it's back in the news. Sanctions are back in the news because of this massive leak in the kleptocracy. Because it's now, you know, sunlight's a great disinfectant. But at the same time, these are people's, you know, confidential financial transactions. They expected to stay confidential, be protected by attorney-client privilege. Like, how do we feel in the sanctions world uh, about uh, leaks like this? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great question, Yvette, for, for lawyers in particular, because if you go outside the legal circles, you'll hear people talk about enablers of kleptocracy, right? And uh, top on the list are lawyers uh, and accountants and consultants. We're, so we're not alone, uh, but we're on the, we're on the short list. And why do they consider lawyers enablers? Well, because lawyers are the people who set up corporations. Lawyers are the people who advise on transactions. Lawyers represent people. And there is a secrecy required uh, under um, our bar commitments to maintain attorney-client privilege, as you said. So I think that is a challenge for our profession is how to maintain appropriate attorney-client confidentiality and privilege but while also making sure that information that maybe should be made public, including the beneficial ownership information that Lisa mentioned before, we are doing our part to make that information public. All right. So, and just for our younger listeners, I presume that all the older lawyers interested in this sort of core national security issue know that there is a case from the Supreme Court called Miller that also said that you don't have an expectation of privacy in your financial transactions. If you're a young lawyer and you haven't read that case, go ahead and read it. It was cross-referenced. You might remember in the arguments and in the opinion in the Carpenter case discussing uh, the third-party doctrine, it's uh, one of those things that you need to have under your belt going forward, something you should be aware of. You know, I, I, I want to say with that, just enforcement and the interest of the administration would be enough to begin to sort of push back on some of these kleptocrats, although quite frankly, the Pandora Papers seems to have been helpful, at least with respect to actions in Chile, where they're apparently going after, is he the PM? I forget. I think they're going after the prime minister, right, right. whose kleptocracy, her kleptocratic tendencies apparently were exposed, and Czech Republic, right? Czech Republic was another one, yeah, in the Panama Papers. That's right. Let me just say this. If you're thinking about doing this and you're a world leader, it's not a good look. And uh, it's not a durable, it's a not a durable thing in the long term. But I guess the question becomes, are there laws that we could change? What are your thoughts about how we could begin to turn this ship around? I mean, I feel like everything is a delicate balancing act as you describe it. And I, I think that's probably accurate. I wish there were clean solutions. We pass a law, we you know beef up enforcement, these things change. 
And I think Yvette's uh, reference to the metaphor, sunlight is a great uh, disinfectant. What do we do? Just rely on the hackers, Brian? (laughs) What's the answer? (laughs) Right. Well, luckily, this is getting back to motherhood and apple pie. This is one of those issues that both parties in Congress, all branches of government can agree this is a a problem that we need to try to figure out to address, how to address. And uh, there's actually a bill that's pending right now in the House that is has bipartisan sponsorship, which would include a number of different kind of in and of themselves incremental steps to address a problem, but maybe taken overall would be a pretty important piece of legislation. So for example, this bill would push FinCEN to accelerate the creation of this beneficial ownership database that we talked about before. The bill would require the State Department to publish uh, rankings of corruption indexes uh, countries around the world so that there is a kind of a, a U.S. government at least approved list of the countries that are more and less corrupt. Uh, the bill would require some additional sanctions from Treasury. So it it kind of takes on a lot of the tools that we've been talking about, tries to sharpen them up in some ways, but also just kind of continues to focus on this problem, which which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I, I hope it, it. I do think it's hard for U.S. businesses um, when they need things like, you know, rare minerals that might be used in batteries and the like. Uh, it is a challenge because uh, when you're dealing with those kleptocracies, you're also butting up against something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, another place where lawyers come in. And uh, these things can become extremely challenging, quite frankly. Now, on this bill that you mentioned, I think to the extent the text is available, and it sounds like it is, um, we will post a hyperlink to congress.gov or GovTrack, uh, or maybe both, at the bottom uh, of the notes to this podcast so people can take a look at it. It's also interesting uh, for our younger lawyers, it's also interesting to look at these things at this stage, because you can also see sometimes how they're eviscerated at a later point in time. And not always for partisan um, political reasons, but often uh, because of how they'll practically play out with some of the complications Brian's already mentioned to you. Again, you know, the world is just not just black and white. Things aren't quite that clean. So anyway, I am always thrilled to have you on. I hope you'll come back. I think this needs to be like at least a quarterly thing, uh, provided that the very good lawyers at Skadden Arbs will let you come and hang out. Right. So long as they don't listen to what I said about lawyers being enablers, I think we'll be fine. So, <laughs> And um, for those of you that didn't get a chance to also hear our podcast, our earlier podcast with Financial Times writer Tom Burgess, the author of the book Kleptocracy, he did a lot of fact collection and he does discuss at length and mercilessly the regulatory schemes in both the United Kingdom and to a degree in the United States. It might also be helpful to hear that because obviously you can see why this becomes a significant challenge. At least in the United States, the financial institutions aren't paying the salaries of the regulators, which is the case in the UK. Let me just say that also is not a good look. So anyway, we're thrilled to have Brian. We hope we'll come back and we'll hope to see you guys next time. And as a reminder, for those who want to volunteer to help Afghan refugees, the ABA's microsite will link you with information so that you can volunteer to help. You can find it in the notes to tonight's cast as well. And I want to thank everybody for listening. We don't take your attention for granted. We are going to remind you that next Thursday is Thanksgiving. So we'll pick up the following week with more national security law breaking issues. Stay safe, everyone. We wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And we hope you enjoy your time with those near and dear to you, even if everybody is uh, engaged in culture wars and wearing masks. If we could uh, all just come together in knowledge and the law, it would be great. 
The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law each week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics you want us to cover or feedback, find us on Twitter. We're at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And just as a quick reminder, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. See you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.